it's almost like he's telling them how fortunate they are. Right? And in, in another part of Matthew, he puts it this way. He says, But blessed are your eyes because you see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it, and hear what you hear but did not hear it. And it's like he's, he's almost trying to get them to see, like, do you see what you get to live through right now? Do you understand the privilege of what it looks like? There's been generation upon generation upon generation upon generation that has come before you that longed for this moment where God's heart and who he is, his posture towards the world, what he's all about is made known, and you get to stand here at this point in history while I uncover these mysterious things. Like, do you understand how blessed you are? Right, and I think there's this thing for us, I know for me, that I've always kind of longed to be one of the disciples. Man, what would it have been like to stand with Jesus as he, as he peels back the undine of history and says, like, this is who God is, and makes sense of the things that have been going on. But you know what? In, in, in John chapter 16, when he's about to leave, go to the cross and, and, and leave the world, he says to his disciples, it's better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, then I can't give you the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit to come and inhabit you and to live life with you, basically. And so we have no right to stand here 2,000 years later and hear Jesus say that to the disciples and not apply that to the how much more for us. And so the challenge that I'd have for you is how privileged do you feel to be able to live your life right now in history? How privileged do you feel to be able to live on this side of the cross? Where the gift of the Spirit for anybody who calls upon the name of Jesus is imparted into the deepest parts of you and floods through your being with joy and love and peace and the power that you need to love a dying world. How privileged do you feel to be able to live at this time in history? There's a passage that has shaped my walk with God out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that speaks of this as well. It says this. It's, Paul's talking about the type of wisdom that he's communicating to the church, and he says, no, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. There's this, like, amount of glory that, that Paul understood of, like, how glorious is it that I get to Unveil the mysteries of truth to you for this exact time, that God preordained a time where we'd get to peel back the curtain and see his heart in the way that we're seeing it right now. And God ordained that time for now before any of this ever existed. And then he says, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. I've heard that verse quoted so many times as, well, God's so good that you can't even imagine what he's like. No eye has seen, no ears hear, no mind can conceive how good God is. And that's how the verse is quoted in the Old Testament. That's, that's this Old Testament passage. And that's the point of it in the Old Testament. 
But Paul brings that verse forward and he says, but for us right now, no, 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 no. Like, that's the very thing that God is revealing to us by his spirit. The very things that were hidden from people of old that they longed to see about God, that's the privilege of our life. That's the privilege of our life. We get to embrace this life with the spirit that he's poured out, and we literally get the process of just peeling back the revelation constantly with God showing us who he is continually and continually and continually. And so I'd say to us, like, what an incredible call. That's, that's good news, right? That, that is gospel good news, that you get a life where the Lord just invites you into this thing where he's like, explore the depths of my heart. In fact, the next part of this passage, it says, nobody knows the depths of God except for the Spirit of God, the very Spirit that's been given to you. And so as we go back to what Yixing was talking about, the expectations of our life, what are the expectations of our life? As we embrace this life with the Holy Spirit, what does it look like? Does it look like this? Does it look like Paul going, hey, check this out. No eye has seen the crazy stuff that you get to see. No ear gets the privilege of hearing the amazing revelations that God has for you as his spirit unveils this stuff to you. Like, that's the expectation of your life. That should be the way that we approach prayer. That should be the way that we approach the scriptures. That should be the way that we even approach relationships with one another, where the glory of God is revealed to each other as we interact with each other, and we're like, oh my gosh, in you I see something about God that I never saw before. And God uses, God's spirit rests on that moment, and he, and he shows you something in that relationship that's who he is, and you get a deeper experience of eternal life because you know him deeper because his spirit is working. That's the expectation of our life. That's the privilege of our life. And there's this thing, just like Easting was saying, where it's like, you kind of step into stuff by faith, and then you start to experience it. You go like, God, I'm going to dare to believe that your voice is active for me too. It's right here, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to dare to believe that your spirit the job is to lead me into all truth. And I'm going to dare to believe that when Jesus says, you're going to go on to do greater things even than the things that he's done, I'm going to dare to believe that maybe that one can happen too in the power of your spirit. And maybe when he says, it's better that I leave, that I don't stay here with you guys, that's better too. And I get to live in that era. Let's read the passage and then there's a couple other places that I want to go with it. So it's Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. It's up here if you'd like it. Jesus comes to them. He's speaking in parables. And he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. 
Let both grow up together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. He told them another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and asked and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will, he will, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ear, let them hear. One of the things that strikes me about this as we break the passage down we talk about what it means is kind of in line with the, what I was just talking about in terms of the privilege of the time that we get to live in. Think about the experience of the apostles. So there are 12 disciples. They're hanging out with Jesus. He dies. He ascends. Uh, he dies. He rises again. Let's not forget that part. <laughs> then he ascends. And they're left to kind of figure things out. And they don't know what to do. He tells them to kind of go hang out in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And it's kind of one of those vague promises, kind of like Abraham, like go out to a land that you know not of, just like kind of start cruising in that direction. Don't worry, you'll figure it out. So he kind of gives one of those to the, the, the apostles, the disciples, and he says, okay, go hang out in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. And they're like, okay. So they're, they're hanging around, they're playing. You know, I, I don't know what they're doing in the upper room for 40 days. For 40 days, they're just hanging out. But these are a bunch of fishermen. These are a bunch of uneducated people that have been hanging out with Jesus for three years and other than their three years with Jesus, they're thoroughly unqualified for anything except for fishing, kind of. You know, it's like, these are not the, these are not the 12 that you would then start your movement with. But in the next, I don't know, it's all in pages of scripture to me, but in the next short period of time, let's call it 10 years, they've planted churches all over the place. In a single day, 3,000 people come to be disciples of Jesus through a message. From that time, this, this small community, these 12 become this small community that then explodes all over the Middle Eastern region. From there, we get the books of the Bible. We get Paul, we get Peter, we get James, we get all John, we get people, different people writing the New Testament. 
and the, and the testimony of faith and the testimony of experience starts to float down through the ages. And the next thing you know, the, world, the, the world's most famous book is the Bible. The world's largest religion is Christianity. There's more followers of Jesus on the earth than any other, than any other religion. This thing has exploded and continues incredibly strong 2,000 years later. And you think about, like, the 12 that started it, it's like, talk about the unlikely group, right? Talk about, like, the, the least likely. Is that not exactly what this parable is when it says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour and it worked all the way through the dough. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed who a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds can branch in it. It's like God is an expert at taking the small unlikely thing that doesn't look like it has any power or anything special about it in any regard. And somehow, as he works it through and does his thing, there's this dormant period, but eventually, as God's work happens, boom, it affects the 60 pounds of flour. Boom, it comes out and it looks like this little plant, and then all of a sudden it just keeps growing and growing and growing, and it's this massive thing. God's ability to take the unlikely and to do something with it is what these parts of the parables are all about. It's a seed. It's like this, this tiny little thing. Check this out. It's this tiny little thing. Before the transformation happens, a bird eats it and needs a lot of them to fill its belly. It's a tiny little seed. Once it's done its transformation work, the birds are camping and building their nests in just one of the many branches that exist after the form of transformation. This is a picture of what God can do with nothing. This is a picture of what God can do with just a, a, a very simple thing like yeast or a seed. And so as we talk about like the privilege of the time that we get to live in, it is not at all just limited to revelation that God shows us about who he is, and it has everything to do with the privilege of being a simple pot in the hands of an incredible God who fills that pot with his glory, and it shines out, and it has this crazy transformation. But as we talk about how expectations can limit what actually happens in our life. I want to challenge you here. Your expectations can limit what actually happens in your life here. I'll just say, I think we need to dramatically upgrade our expectations for what God can do with a simple little seed or a simple little, like, bundle of leaven that's sitting in one of these pews or standing up here with a microphone strapped to his head. <laughs> What's your expectation for your life? What is your expectation for your workplace as you go into a place that feels like 60 pounds of flour and you're like, what the heck am I? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't even know where to start with this thing. Like, I got my own stuff going on internally. And, you know, some days I'm just kind of like, just trying to make it through. What does that look like to, to have God need you through 60 pounds of flour. This was enough to feed hundreds of people. 60 pounds of flour. 
in the parable, Jesus is very intentional. It's a massive, it's a massive thing of flour. He's like, no, no, you don't get it. Like the leaven can raise this whole thing. These 12 fishermen in the hands of a mighty God, they can change the world. This carpenter in three years of his life can start a revolution that for, will, forever change, will, will forever change the world and all of history will pivot around this guy in three years. And so for our expectations, what does that look like for you in the context that you're in? What does it look like for, for you to upgrade your expectations of what God can do? Because check it out, like you're just like everybody else sitting in here. You know your stuff, you know your weaknesses, you know all the reasons why you're the unlikely one. Can we just establish that and like, yes, yes, yes. That's the very thing that qualifies us. He gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. If you didn't see that stuff, you would be the most unqualified person. You'd be the, you, you wouldn't accomplish anything. Because God, your whole life, God would be resisting you. But it's because you have sight to what's going on in you and because you have the humility to go like, God, like, I don't know. You know, like, what, what does it look like for me to do this marketplace thing really well? What does it look like for me to go to class and to change a campus? There's 35,000 people here with a lot of professors that don't believe anything that you say. Right? 60 pounds of flour. Amen. He's getting it over here. But this thing about expectations is real. This thing about expectations is big. What do you expect when you go to the quiet place? Big deal. What do you expect when you go to work? Big deal. And the reason oftentimes why expectations are so powerful is because it changes how you approach everything you do. If you have an expectation that like God can use you just as you are, that you're just kind of this broken jar ready for God to use, then you don't go into your quiet time and spend the entire time just talking about, oh God, like one day, one day I'll get there and then you can use me. You know, it's like your prayers start to move into like, God, I believe because you're so great that you can use even this little life to change the world. You shift your thinking and go like, oh wow, it seems like what Jesus is saying here is this is much more about God's ability to transform than a mustard seed being an interesting thing. But somehow, somehow, packed in that little seed is the power of transformation. Somehow packed in that little seed is the power to influence the environment such that other people and other things are camping out in your branches and all of a sudden you're like the sense of stability for the people around you and people are feeding off the things that you're doing. Somehow that happens and there's this dormant period usually for all of us. Just like in the parable. The seed doesn't get planted and then it's a tree the next day. If you know anything about baking bread, you, like, you gotta let the thing sit. You gotta let the yeast do its thing. And then next thing you know, the whole thing is affected, and you're like, whoa, there's not an ounce of this flour that's not affected by that yeast. So I think these, these parables are challenging. 
the way we need to think about stuff. And then if we jump back up to the parable of the wheat and the weeds, there's a really interesting thing that's going on here. And, and I think that there's... Um, so Mark 13 is this series of parables, and Jesus keeps saying, let's talk about the kingdom. Let me unveil to you what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Right? We'll get there in a second in terms of like, what is the kingdom of heaven? Like, what, what is he talking about there? But what we see in the first one is this passage about seed being sown into the human heart. We see Jesus speaking out to the crowds and the seeds landing and it's, some of it's bearing fruit and some of it starts to bear fruit and then it gets choked out, etc., etc. Then we get to this wheat and weeds passage and we're going to talk about what it means in a second. But then he seems to jump right back to a life of fruitfulness. He starts to jump back into things like, okay, let's go back. Remember that seed I was talking about in your heart that, that bears a hundredfold fruit? Let's talk about that in terms of things of the world, right? So it's like you have the personal version, and then you have the what does it look like to influence the world version, and camped right in the middle of those two is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And I want to talk about that for a second because what this parable is all about is why on earth is there evil in God's kingdom? Why on earth, and, and, and you can tell that the workers in the story, they see weeds and they're like, wait a second, this doesn't fit with who I know who you are as a sower, right? Like, I know the kind of seed and I know the quality that you have and, and you're, you know, like who you are. Like, what is going on? Why is there weeds? Like, immediately they see the evil in the world and they go, God, this doesn't fit with who you are. They don't go, God, did you throw some weeds in there? Seriously. They don't go, God, did you throw some weeds in your field to bless and benefit the rest of the wheat? They look at it and they go, wait, weeds choke out wheat. This was a very specific, the, the word he uses here is a very specific type of wheat. It's this, it's this wheat that would grow up to a certain level, and as it's growing up, it looks identical to the, I'm sorry, the weeds. The weeds grow up to a certain level. It looks identical as to the wheat. And then all of a sudden you see it and you're like, oh man, that's weeds. But, but, as it's, but by the time it's come up to that level, the root system has already wrapped itself around the root system of the, wheat, of the wheat. And so what he's talking about here is you can't just rip out the weeds without affecting the root system of the wheat. But I think like, what's our response when we see evil in the world? Is it to immediately go like, God, you're probably not as good as I thought you were before. Because all of this stuff around me is happening, and I don't know, I don't know how to explain any of it. And like, how could you have a good sovereign God but, not have, but have evil in the world? It doesn't make sense to me. And I think that the reason why this parable is camped right in between the, 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 these other two is because I think oftentimes for people, this is a massively limiting thing. This is one of those things that can take somebody's faith out. In fact, when I used to do campus ministry, I'd talk to people all the time on campus, and one of the, one of the key things that they'd always say almost every time is, is, well, I can't get over this thing because check out all of this stuff that's going on in the world, and you say that God is in control. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know how to reconcile those two things. And so, so maybe not. But maybe this parable is camped right in there because there's something that's kind of like a beware thing. Beware. Yeah. 
You know, like we're talking about my kingdom here. And, and you know, the idea of the kingdom is the king's dominion. Kingdom, king's dominion. It's where he's in control. Where's the kingdom? It's where, where he's the king. Just like in a normal earthly kingdom. Where's the kingdom? Where are the parameters of the kingdom? Well, it's anywhere where the bounds of the king and his rule have full effect. And so he's like, hey, check it out. My kingdom's kind of like this. I have this huge plot of land. It's mine. I sow only good things into this thing. And then the enemy comes and sows this wickedness in the world. And, and his servants have the right response. They're like, should we get rid of it? Right? It's the right response. It's like, this is intolerable for your field. Should we go out and get rid of it? And he's like, no. I have a higher, I have a higher reason for this. I have a higher purpose. I have a thing that's going on that you may not fully understand. And you kind of just need to be okay with it for now and just trust my goodness through it. There's this thing where, you know, I heard, I heard it said once like this, you know, oftentimes the devil and God are seen as like arch enemies. Like they're, you know, they're going after each other or something like this. And it's like, when you stop and you say it like that, you're like, that's so stupid, right? Even in the parable, it says, there's an end of the age where Jesus goes, lifts up a scepter, right? Whatever he's going to do. Lifts up a scepter, and the angels are like, finally, it's go time, yeah. right? <laughs> right? Like, it's done. It's done. This isn't like, oh, it's a mighty battle, and, you know, like, whatever, you know. No, 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 no. When the scepter goes up, it's done. And that's part of the story here. It's like, hey, once it's harvest time, once it's done, it's done. There's no, like, massive fight between God and the devil. Are you kidding me? God just, like, looks in his direction and it's like, melts, right? <laughs> the battle is between humanity and the devil. The battle that we're in is humanity and the devil. It's do we believe God over the other stuff? All of these lies that are sown into the world by the adversary. He is the great liar. He's just sowing stuff in. And so there's the fruit of his lies that exist, and then there's the fruit of God's truth that exists. And we're like, okay, which one do I believe? How do I act in the world? Which one do I look at? Which one am I impressed with? And I believe it sits camped right in the, in the middle of these two parables because I think even in its smaller forms, it has the ability to maybe not destroy your faith, but erode it such that you're kind of like, well, maybe I just diminish my expectations of who God is. Maybe it's enough to believe, you know, like that if I, if I pray, like this prayer thing probably won't happen because I don't want to get my expectations up too high because then I'll be disappointed and then I'll be scared of that. But our great battle is one of faith. We're called believers. It's one where you see the stuff going on in the world and you're like, yeah, yeah, I see all that stuff too. But I choose to believe that all of that stuff exists because there's an enemy that's despicable that would be thrown in the pit of fire at the end of the age and it's just a matter of time. 
and the, the spirit that lives in me is greater than the one that lives in this world and does all this stuff. So I think more than anything, these three parables come down to our expectations, and our expectations have everything to do with our faith, and our faith has everything to do with the way we operate in the world. From the smallest little thing like a quiet time to how you march into your office and you're like, is, is, the, is the light in me or is the light not in me? Light shines the brightest in the darkest spots. It's cliche, but it's still awesome. <laughs> So I think the challenge for us today is like, let's up-level our, our expectations. We are living in a great time in history. Prophets of old looked forward and saw glimpses, and they're like, oh, if I could live in that time. If I could live in that time where God's heart was made known to his people, man, I'd be fierce and bold like a lion, right? Man, if I could live where, wait, wait, wait. That spirit that rested on Samson that made him so strong, that spirit that rested on David to allow him to slay Goliath, that spirit that rested on Gideon to allow him to lead armies to destruction of the Lord's enemies, that spirit rests on everybody? What are you crazy? Like, are you cra can you imagine how gangbusters this time must be? Right? Can't you imagine the prophets of old being like, what? Wait, wait, wait. This spirit rests on everybody? This is insane. That would change the world. And that's the point. <laughs> that will change the world. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. Let's stand. Let's get some prayer. Let's do the things we normally do as we respond to the Lord. But the challenge here is that we up-level our expectations. We up-level our belief in how good God is. We up-level our belief in how he can use something so seemingly nothing as a mustard seed to bear a hundredfold fruit. And so as you engage with the Lord, wherever the, whatever the context the Lord is speaking to you in, whether it's your personal time, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your classroom, whether it's your family, whether, whatever it is, what does it look like to trust that the Lord, when the Lord needs you into the pounds of flour, that it actually, with time and with trust and with honor of the work that God is doing, it actually has an effect to change the world. Let's pray. God, I thank you that, Lord, in this equation, you're the great multiplier. God, I thank you that we're called to have great faith in you. <laughs> great faith in the one like we sang before, who is eternally faithful. And God, I thank you that as we look at the accounts of history, for as long as we have record, you've been in the business of using people that are the least of these to change the world. And so, Lord, whether it's our quiet times and the revelation that you long to, to show or, or the power of your spirit on the one who's humble enough to believe that you can use even us. God, we ask for a great work to be released as our expectations lift and as our faith in you, God, goes to the next place. You're worthy of all of our trust and we put it in you. In Jesus' name, amen.
So if you want to come up and get prayer, 